I'm turning today to the book of Acts, chapter 1 and verse 1. The Acts of the Apostles, chapter 1, verse 1. The former treaties have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up after that he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. And our subject is the necessity of spiritual power. Well, we've concluded our studies in the Gospel of Mark and we concluded with the Great Commission as it is recorded in Mark's Gospel and we considered it as it is recorded in Matthew's Gospel and then we went on to look at the Gospel of John and the resurrection appearance of Christ to seven disciples at the Lake of Tiberias and a kind of uh, repetition of the Great Commission, but this time cast in a very personal and pastoral sense. And we tried to explore the riches of that so complementary to the Great Commission as we have it in Mark and in Matthew. But today I'd like to turn here to Acts 1 to see another presentation of the Great Commission. There's nothing different materially, but there is another aspect of it brought out, this time by Luke, the physician. And we can see it in the closing chapter of Luke, which we read in our scripture reading, and we can see it here in Acts 1. So I propose to expound perhaps eight or nine verses of Acts 1 to see this other aspect of the Great Commission. And it is concerning the Holy Spirit and the place and the work of the Holy Spirit in the obedience of the apostles to the Great Commission. It, I felt it was a good opportunity for us to look at all aspects of that commission as we find them in all the Gospels and in Luke's Acts of the Apostles. So beginning here with verse 1. The former treatise or account have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. In the Gospel of Luke, we read, as in the other Gospels, of the things that Christ began to do and teach. But of course he continued to teach even after his resurrection and ascension up to the point of his resurrection and ascension. He is teaching and he is preaching. And then afterwards he is teaching by the power of the Spirit, inspiring the apostles, reminding them of everything that he said and did, inspiring the formation of the New Testament, and uh, working through the apostles. The apostles, you remember, were given by Christ the power to do signs and wonders, similar in some ways to those that Christ did, 
Christ thereby proving that they are his men, that they are his apostles, authenticating them and demonstrating that he is still alive in the church. So the former treaties have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and teach. But he went on acting and teaching. And many have observed that the Acts of the Apostles could more accurately be entitled the Acts of Christ through the Apostles. His Acts and his demonstrating his ongoing life in glory and power upon the church. This interesting uh, fact that uh, Luke says this, the former treaties have I made, O Theophilus, whereas previously in his introduction to the Gospel of Luke, he addresses him as most noble Theophilus. And it's worth commenting that many have thought over the years that this is an indication possibly of the conversion of Theophilus. Uh, Not many people are addressed in these splendid terms in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul gives the signs nobility to Felix and to King Agrippa, but it's very rare. And it's said and it's believed from uh, the uh, early writings of the early church that probably Christians never used honours of each other. And so is this evidence that Theophilus, who in the beginning of the Gospel of Luke is properly honoured as an eminent person, somebody high and lifted up, second to a governor perhaps. Josephus thought he was a priest, but that's not all that reliable. But certainly he's a person of Jewish background, that's in his name. But nevertheless, uh, here is Theophilus, not converted, given his nobility, but now it's shed for the Acts of the Apostles. So was Theophilus saved, it's rather tempting to think, through that Gospel of Luke, dedicated to him in his name. The former account have I made, O Theophilus, no special honour now of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. These first five verses, I mustn't spend time on uh, explaining this because there's so much to be done, but these five verses are a masterpiece. They have to be considered in the Greek as one thought, one sentence, a very long sentence. Our King James Version gives them just one full stop after verse 4. Some of the modern versions seem not to appreciate the wonder of this single sentence introduction and recapitulation by giving it as many as three and even four full stops, breaking it up and trying to improve upon it for our understanding. But in a rather masterly way, the King James translators, with one full stop, give it to us as one passage. And so it was. And it is amazing. If the preacher recapitulates, it may take him too long. When Luke, under the inspiration of the Spirit, 
recapitulates. He does it all in one breath. And it's magnificent. The former treatise have I made of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taking up, taken up after that he through the Holy Ghost had given commandment unto the apostles whom he had chosen. I won't read it all, but the more you read it through, maybe over and over again someday, the more you'll appreciate how masterly it is to get all these things in one breath, one sentence. But I come to verse 2. Until the day, which is where the Gospel of Luke ends, in which he was taken up after that he, and these are very significant words, after that he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. Well, I'll deal with whom he had chosen first. Just to remind us, the apostles were chosen by the Lord. There are no apostles other than the eleven and Paul, the one born out of due time, who also saw the Lord and was commissioned directly by him. There are no more apostles because the first qualification of an apostle, a true apostle, is that he saw the risen Lord and was commissioned directly, personally, by him such as the eleven and such as Paul. People who call themselves apostles today have absolutely no right to do so. They have not been personally commissioned by the risen Lord. And that is why there are no instructions in the New Testament for the selection of apostles, because only God selected apostles, Christ, Personally, there were, no, there were instructions for pastors, for elders, for deacons, but none for apostles, and none for prophets, by the way, because apostles and prophets, inspired prophets, belonged only to that era, the first stage of the church. Once the New Testament was complete, no more prophets, no more direct inspiration, no more revelation by which we are given authoritative information and doctrines. God may move us by the Spirit in various ways, reminding us of duties, convicting us, reminding us of essential things, but there is no authoritative revelation outside the completed Scriptures. So we note the apostles whom he had chosen. But there's this special statement, after that Christ, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles. What's that about, dear friends? Did not Christ always work and teach by the Holy Ghost? Yes, of course he did. The Holy Ghost descended upon him and worked with him, and in him, and through him. He was himself eternally divine, and the Holy Spirit was with him. So what does it mean here for Luke, under inspiration, to especially say, 
after that he'd instructed the disciples by the Holy Ghost. Well, we read it in our second scripture reading. We read that last chapter of Luke. First of all, you remember there were two disciples on the Emmaus Road after the crucifixion of Christ, and they're very downcast, very despondent, because the one who they believed would be the deliverer of Israel had been executed, and Christ, first of all, appears to those two, and at first they didn't know it until he was ready to leave them, and he explained to them, opened up to them the scriptures, and explained to him how the prophecies all made clear that Christ, when he came, wouldn't be a political deliverer, but he would be a saviour from sin, and that he would make a great sacrifice and suffer and die for sinners. And then Christ revealed himself to the disciples together, to the eleven, and he went through exactly the same thing. We read it in the last chapter of Luke. He explained to them how all things in the scripture pointed to him and his suffering and death, his atoning death for sinners, and that repentance and remission of sin must be preached among all nations, the Lucan version of the Great Commission, beginning at Jerusalem, and then the whole world. But all that was done now by the special power of the Holy Spirit, now Christ always worked with the Holy Spirit, both members of the eternal Godhead. But here it's particularly emphasized. In other words, this time, as he taught them, last chapter of Luke, the giving of the Great Commission, the risen Lord, as he taught them, they really grasped it. And their eyes were opened and they understood Calvary and they understood the atoning death. Here was an accelerated time of instruction in which things they'd heard and never grasped came right home to their understanding and they felt them. So it's very special until the day in which he was taken up after that he threw the Holy Ghost. This is new. This is a different level. Had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. Now they know. And in the other appearances, they were taught so many things. Up to 12 appearances of the risen Lord. Over 40 days we read about in the records of Scripture. And then in verse 3, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, certain tokens or demonstrations, you could put it that way. He showed himself alive after his suffering and death by certain infallible proofs or tokens, being seen of them 40 days and speaking during that time of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God and of whom it was composed, of people who repented 
and were forgiven. People who believed, people who received new life and making it clear in their understanding. It's a wonderful thing that one moment the disciples are fleeing for their lives when Christ is arrested or allows himself to be arrested so that he may go to Calvary in the plan of God. Men would execute him, but God would put upon him the sin of all those who would be redeemed and their guilt and punish him instead of them. Well, here it is. Now he's risen from the dead. The disciples, one minute, are running for their lives. And then you read later on the day of Pentecost, there is Peter preaching with such boldness and clarity. In no time, he's understood it because of the commandments, the instruction given by the risen Lord, especially in a special way by the Holy Spirit, so that it all came home to them as never before. That's the sense. This commission is going to stress the Holy Spirit. That's the aspect which is not given in the other records to the same extent that it is by Luke. So we come down to verse 4. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. So these appearances of verse 3 are tokens of his being alive. That's something for us to remember so many of our failings and falls in the Christian life are because we momentarily forget that he is alive and he is near. He appeared to show his ongoing life. He defeated death. He'd accomplished Calvary. He'd borne all our sin away successfully. Now he takes up and resumes his life is a living saviour. When we're despondent and cast down or plunged into some momentary despair or give way to some wrong passion, it's because we've forgotten the living Lord and we're in his view and in his care all the time and we're disgracing ourselves in his view, and we're a disappointment to him. And he is ever ready to hear our cry and to help us. He showed himself alive, time after time. And then when it came to the ascension, he visibly rose into the heavens, imprinting on the minds of the disciples, the apostles, that he was alive forevermore. This is a great thing. Christ is alive. Christ is risen. There are Christians in some parts of the world have this as a kind of motto statement and a greeting to each other. And if it means something to you, it's a very good idea. He is risen, they say to each other. 
And that's what we need to remember. He is alive and watching and caring and ready to help in all circumstances. So we read of that in verse 3. But a second heading in verse 4, it is now the era of the Spirit, being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, just pray and wait. They went into an upper room and they waited with the other disciples, 120 of them all together. We read that in due course. They were engaged in the study of the scripture. They were concerned about the loss of an apostle and his replacement. They were concerned about the coming of the Holy Spirit and waiting. That's the command of verse 4. Wait for the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit. This is now to be the era of the Spirit. Christ is no longer with them in the flesh. In fact, he says to them in John 14, John 15, and verse John 16, we read, he says to them, I go away. I must go away, he says in so many terms. It is to your advantage that I go away. He says to them, if I go away, then I can send upon you the Spirit, and the Spirit can be with you. I must go away, and it is to your advantage that I am not with you, because the Spirit will be with you. And we naturally ask, well, how is that? How is it an advantage to the disciples if Christ in the flesh is no longer with them, but the Spirit comes in his stead as his representative to dwell within them, to prompt them, to help them, to strengthen them? How is it such an advantage? They love Christ. They've been with him three years. He's their instructor. He is perfect. He is wonderful. He is amazing. They're staggered at his teaching. It is so profound and so easy to grasp his deeds, his miracles, that he will go. What will become of them? What will they do? But it is necessary and it is best. And there's the question, why is it best? Well, there are two reasons we can think of at once. And one is this. Christ, while he was in the flesh, did not give up his Godhead, his divinity. He was still God. He was the God-man, but he was working under limitations. He was enclosed in a body of flesh. He was a man also, and working within that body of flesh. If he was not there, the disciples were alone. If a disciple should be sent on an errand, as he often was, or sent out two by two to witness, suddenly they were divested of the presence of Christ. They couldn't see him. They couldn't appeal to him. They couldn't ask him. 
He couldn't support them personally and directly because he was limited in that respect. He could only be in one place at any one time. Don't you see, he says to them, it is to your advantage that I go and I return to the Father because in my absence the Spirit will be with you all the time and in you and upon you and wherever the people of God are, there is the Spirit of God among them and within them. So that's an enormous advantage. And then again, there's another advantage. While Christ was with them, his presence meant too much to them. And when his presence wasn't there, they collapsed. And they disappointed. His presence was everything. They must learn to appropriate his power and his promises and walk with him by faith when he is absent from them. So the invisible Holy Spirit will take over and occupy them. You remember what happened to Peter when he sought to walk on the water? And he began to look away from Christ and at the boisterous waves and the wind. He began to sink. Time after time, the disciples, without the presence of Christ, collapsed when he was asleep, though he was present. In a vessel at sea, they went to pieces. Master, carest thou not that we Perish, they said, waking him up. They set too much upon his presence. It is to your advantage that I go away, that you may prove me by faith and have the Spirit in your heart and present with you and moving you. I could give you other reasons too, but this is going to be the age of the Spirit who can be everywhere giving power and blessing to the people of God, especially in the carrying out of the Great Commission. So verse 3, don't do a thing. Wait in Jerusalem. You can do nothing in my absence until the Spirit comes. And there's the lesson for us. Anything of significance that you do, Every day that you begin, start by praying to God for help by the Spirit. Start by praying that you'll heed the movement of the Spirit in your conscience through the day. Pray for a spiritually blessed day. Every great undertaking, every home visited, every witness mounted, Every lesson given, you start with acknowledging your need of the blessing and power of the Spirit. Everything we do, this is the era of the power of the Spirit, making known Christ, representing him, blessing us in every endeavour. And by the way, if the Holy Spirit is everything, in our service and witness and work and walk of holiness, 
make sure that we use the methods that he approves of. The methods in the scripture, preaching, teaching, and prayer. Not all the gimmicks that well-meaning but mistaken Christians invent today. Brand new methods and ideas, drama and all the rest of it. Music, music, music everywhere to manipulate the emotions. All the gimmicks and methods that people invent today to make known Christ. Make sure you use the methods that the Spirit has given us in the Word. That's the safe thing. If we want Him to bless us, use exclusively His methods. Then we come down to verse 5. John truly baptized with water. This is going to be about the Spirit. But ye shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days hence, which is a manner of saying, in a few days it would happen on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit would come down upon the church. Now there was something that they still didn't quite understand. And you find it in verse 6. They understood Calvary now. That had been explained to them. Our disciples understood the atonement. But there was still something of their mistaken earlier beliefs in them. It's in verse 6. When they therefore were come together, same event probably that we've just been reading about, they asked of him saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Amazing, it was still in their heads. The false teaching of the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees of the day. The false teaching that Messiah, when he came, would be a political deliverer and would give to Israel the kingdom back. The monarchy would thrive again. The Romans presumably be expelled. And Israel would be supreme once more. When's it going to happen? Will it be at this time that the Spirit comes down? So they've still got their minds cluttered with this idea of a national earthly restoration of Israel. Some people, by the way, have their minds still cluttered with that today as Christians. But I don't go into that right now. Wilt thou at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And the Lord responds with two answers. The first is in verse 7. He said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. Speaking of the coming of the kingdom of Christ, it's not for you to know the end of the world, the return of Christ. That will come as a complete surprise to you. There are, the scripture tells us, some general indications of things that will happen at the end. 
And when we see these, we can lift up our heads and say, the end must be near. But you don't know precisely. You cannot predict it. You cannot say it. That's not for you. But then in verse 8, the second part of the answer effectively answers their question, but in an, an oblique kind of way. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the utter, uttermost part of the earth. That's going to take a lifetime, surely, they must think. The restoration of the kingdom to Israel isn't what we should be thinking of. It's making known Christ. The Holy Spirit is going to be given to us for this duty. This is the era of evangelism, of winning souls, of bringing people to repentance and remission of sins, of preaching Christ and Calvary. Look at the way he puts it. Ye shall receive power. You will be empowered. They've already been appointed to be the witnesses of Christ. And a witness is not just a person who's seen something. A witness is somebody who has not only seen something and is ready to speak about it and to give witness to it in a court of law. That's what the word translated witness means. Somebody who has not only seen, but can testify and speak of it. You're not a witness in a Bible sense if all you've done is seen something. You're only a witness if you give the evidence if you give testimony, if you speak. And the disciples have already been told they will be those who have seen and who give testimony, who speak about it in the power of the Spirit. That's what's going to happen, not the returning of the kingdom to Israel. And ye shall be witnesses unto me. Now yesterday... There was held in our lecture hall a great day concerning evidence and indications of the world being a young earth that has been created. Things that uh, completely disprove or eliminate a theory of evolution. We call it apologetics and it's wholesome and it's good, and it's very encouraging to Christians, and it makes unbelievers think. That's wonderful. That's worthy. That's honoring to God, our Creator. That makes people think. But without the slightest disrespect to a great endeavor, it doesn't save souls. The saving of souls part comes with this. Ye shall be witnesses unto me. When Christ comes into it, when his atoning death is proclaimed, 
when the condemnation of sinners and the need of the pardon of God is brought into it. Christ is the only saviour. That's what saves. Apologetics can be very, very used of God to wake people up, to bring them to think and to respect him. But only Christ can save. Ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem, look at this, and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Do you see the significance of this? There is an outward movement. You'll start in Jerusalem, right here. But it'll go beyond Jerusalem, throughout Judea, that's the Jews, all the Jews first, and in Samaria. Did the disciples catch their breath when the Lord said, and in Samaria? They were mentally programmed to despise Samaritans and to look down upon them. They'd vastly polluted the old faith and bent it to their liking. They were to be disregarded and shunned. And in Samaria, they must have, as I say, have been startled and caught their breath. And not only Samaria, but the most pagan nations, the Gentiles at large, unto the uttermost part of the earth, places you've never thought of. Think of Thomas, doubting Thomas. He was broken when the Lord showed him his wounded side and said, thrust your hand into my side. How he doubted the resurrection, the last of the apostles to truly believe. And yet, we can't be sure of this, but early Christian tradition says that Thomas took the gospel to Parthia, as Iran today, and then to India, where early tradition says that after several years, he was martyred with a lance, a long spear. So the one who was last to believe was one of the furthest to go with the gospel if that tradition is correct, to the uttermost parts of the earth. That was the Luke transmission of the Great Commission, showing us the aspect of the Holy Spirit. You can do nothing without the Spirit. Wait until he comes. He will be everything to you. He is your illuminator, your teacher. He is your member of the Godhead indwelling you and moving you and prompting you. When he moves your conscience, don't deny him. Don't shrug it off. Don't ignore it. Do that enough times. Maybe he won't prompt you anymore. And you'll be hardened in that sin or disobedience. The precious indwelling of the Holy Spirit 
who James tells us in his letter, yearns for us to keep us on the track, to keep us honouring Christ. He yearns to help us. Verse 9, our time is up. When he had spoken these things, while they beheld, fixed their eyes upon him. Says Luke in his gospel, he lifted his hands and he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he was taken up. He rose slowly, possibly, ever more rapidly until he reached the clouds, as it were, and one cloud wonderfully and purposefully enclosed him to conceal him from view. It wrapped itself around him because something was going to happen, his transmission into glory, which no human eye could possibly see or grasp. And they went on staring until two angels came to gently reprove them and put them in the direction of their duty. The Lucan edition of the Great Commission and the emphasis of the Holy Spirit. That's such a treasure to us. Christ is alive. You need the Spirit for everything. Never deny him his promptings. Pray every day and every significant event of your life for the blessing and guidance and help of the Spirit. But above all, remember that the first task of every Christian and the church everywhere is to make Christ known.